I'm introducing Pastor uh, Stephen Baker. He uh, pastors at a church that I have gained much from and from the men down there and their work. Um, and he's been a part of that for a number of years, 15, almost 20. Okay. So uh, past, Pastor Stephen's main job there is he heads up their pastor training college. Um, you've all heard of seminaries and so on, and typically what happens is men who are called to the ministry, uh, like, mostly independent, completely from their local church, not being sent by them even, maybe not even knowing, they head off to a seminary, uh, receive some academic training, very little spiritual formation, almost no experience, very little preparation for the actual shepherding of souls, and then they go and pastor some little flock and uh, learn on the fly through a lot of pain uh, the difficulty of shepherding. Well, what they do is they want the men who are being called to the ministry to remain in their local churches while receiving not only a theological education, but a practical spiritual preparation, preparing men for the ministry, mentoring, being involved, giving them uh, what they need in order to pastor Christ's church. And it's the way that it had been done before the kind of the professionalism of it uh, happened, and they're recovering that. And it's a really, really good work. And so you can go online and find more about it. In fact, they're starting a new program uh, that's kind of a one-year uh aimed at two different groups, I guess, a, a younger men who may be headed towards ministry or headed towards college that would give them a good grounding and a solidly biblical view of history and literature and the West and, and so on. But then also for anybody else in the church who wants to grow more, so you might talk to him more about that. Anyways, the work that he's doing down there on their behalf is excellent. We're very grateful for him. Uh, he is married. Uh, really enjoyable story if you want to hear of that. You can ask him about living in a teepee and then a goat barn, if you would like. It would be uh, worth your time. Uh, so they have six sons, seven grandchildren, two more on the way. And last year's speaker, Joseph Spurgeon, we asked, who would you recommend? This is the topic we want to look at uh, that you'll be hearing from. And his top recommendation was Stephen. So that's surprising to you because I'm sure he'll... He'll tell you opposite, and so uh, that's why uh, we asked Stephen, but I've been blessed by listening to his preaching, again, by the ministry of their church, so let's welcome Stephen. Hello. So, how many of you guys are from Pine Grove here? I'm just trying to get the lay of the land. Okay. And from somewhere else? Somewhere else. All right. Sweet. Well, it's great to be here. Uh, I've known Jeremy for, what, five five years or something? Seven? I don't know. Um, and uh, it's really great to be here. I love this part of the country. I met my wife uh, in northwestern Ontario, so straight north of International Falls, if you know where that is. And so this part of the country just looks like that part of the world, you know, just beautiful. So I'm really glad to be here. Well, 
We're here this weekend to talk about men and friendship, all right? Now, right off the bat, I want to tell you how humorous that is to me, okay? Because I'm not the kind of man who has a lot of friends. I'm not outgoing. I'm not an extrovert. I find uh, small talk to be almost excruciating. Some of you can relate to that. I do not have a lot of friends. I just don't. I do have some close friends. I have some, some of the friends um, that I have are really are close. There are a handful of men that I would trust my life to. There are a handful of men that I would trust my family to. But making good, true friends is hard for me. And so if you came here tonight hoping to hear from an expert on friendship, you might be disappointed. So when Jeremy asked me to come and speak at a men's retreat about friendship, I I told him this today. I said, I almost said no. But then I thought more about it, and this is why I said yes. First, I thought it'd be good for me to have to think more carefully about friends and friendship think about my own weaknesses, my own failings in this. I'm 52 years old. You know, I've had good friends, but I'm, I'm 52 years old. I should have more. Um, so to examine myself and ask hard questions about my own life. Okay, so that's the first reason I said I should say yes to this. Second, I thought about you men. And I suspect that most of you or a lot of you, are similar to me. Just a guess. I suspect that most of you find it difficult to make deep, lasting friendships with other men. And I don't know about you, but I've never been able to learn math from a mathematician. You know what I mean? I mean, who would, who would you rather learn from? Who would you rather learn math from? Math is not my thing. Who would you rather learn math from? Someone who finds math easy and natural and never really had to work at it, or a man who had to work at it? (laughs) And so he understands the thinking of those who don't get it, right? That's who you want to learn from. So here I am. I'm the man who has a hard time making friends, teaching you how important it is to have friends. And even how to go about finding them and developing buddies and acquaintances into a band of brothers, all right? But remember, you don't want to learn math from a mathematician because a mathematician doesn't understand what it is to not understand. Trust me, I know what it is. I understand what it is to not understand. With math, for sure, but with friendships. So I've had to think hard about this, and uh, I hope what I have to say is going to be helpful to you. Um, You know, if I get up here and and say how easy it is, because it's easy for me, you would all, I hope, probably, walk away depressed. Right? I don't want, it's not easy. I know it's not easy. 
And I don't want you guys to walk away depressed because someone up here thinks it's easy. It's not. All right? So we all on the same page? (laughs) Yeah, we'll see. Now, how many of you find it easy to make friends? There's got to be a couple of you here who find it easy to make friends. Okay. Wow. So I'm... Okay, we got two... <laughs> you make it you're easy you're you're easy making friends apparently. You didn't know that? Well, there you know. Well, that's a good question. It's a good question. Um and what do we mean by friends? So I'm not talking about shallow surface, you know, acquaintances. That's not what I'm talking about. Not just buddies. Because we all probably have a lot of buddies. Maybe. But I'm talking about true, lifelong, thick and thin, trust with your life, spill your guts, brothers. That's what I'm talking about. Scientists, or a lot of people are, um, you know, studying this whole thing about men and friendships. That's probably why you wanted to talk about it. Um, and they say that a lack of male friendships is an epidemic right now. An epidemic that's affecting both mental health and physical health. Right? This is what they say. They say that there are physical effects of being lonely. Feeling lonely causes your cortisol levels to soar. Do you know what cortisol is? It's the stress hormone that your body releases. It's the, it's the fight or flight hormone that makes you, you know, eventually it'll kill you. So scientists say that feeling lonely causes your cortisol levels to soar. In fact, they say that becoming really lonely is as stressful as being punched in the face. Same effect to your body. 30 years ago, the average number of close friends an American had, American man had, was three. 30 years ago, a man would say, I have three close friends. You know what it is today? Zero. Zero. So, are you lonely? Are you lonely? We all know what it feels like to be lonely. Being lonely has nothing to do with whether you're alone or not. Okay? You can be lonely in a crowd. You can be lonely in church. You can be lonely in your family. Loneliness just means being without a friend. Right? Uh, With no one who gets you. With no one who understands you. No one to trust. No one who you know will stick with you. No one who will punch you in the face when you need to be punched in the face. There's a difference between, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Men need friends. Men need friends. Now, why do men need friends? What is a friend? Is it enough to have your wife as your friend? Can you even have your wife as a friend? And if having friendships or friends is so important, how do you go about 
building those, okay? Those are the questions I'm going to try to open up this weekend. Now, before we get into those questions, there's one more thing that we have to start with. This is foundational and really sets the stage for the whole idea of friendships among men, okay? The decline in male friendships does not come from an overemphasis on masculinity. This is what they say. You read the social science people, and most of them will say, yeah, the problem, the reason why men don't have friends anymore is because we in America have overemphasized masculinity. I don't know what America they think they're talking about. We do not overemphasize masculinity. They say that our culture overemphasizes masculinity and men are not supposed to be relational, you know, tough guy. And therefore, men don't have friends. That's their explanation. Now, there is some truth to that. There's some truth to that. Uh, But the source is not, you know, what they call toxic masculinity. That's not the problem. The reason men don't want to get too close to other men, think about it, is because male friendship has been ruined by sodomites. Sodomites. You probably weren't expecting to hear that word tonight. This should be obvious to us, if you think about it. If I get too open, if I get too close, too intimate with another man, everyone will think what? They're gay. And so we're like, okay, I don't want anyone to think that. So I will cut myself off from that kind of friendship. If I hug a man, everyone will think I'm gay. If I kiss a man, everybody will know I'm gay. even though men have embraced and kissed each other since the beginning of the world. You know, men like King David and the Apostle Paul, those wimps. Well, not anymore. Why? Because of toxic masculinity? No. Because of toxic sodomy. Toxic effeminacy. All right, you guys following me? Male affection has been ruined for normal, godly men because male affection in our culture has been eroticized. One of the things we need to do, one of the ways to to fight all the stuff that's going on in our culture along those lines is to de-eroticize, okay, male Physical affection. Touch. So I'm, I'm from Bloomington, Indiana. Okay, that's where I live now, right? Been there for 20 years. What's in Bloomington, Indiana? Anybody know? No. No. Bloom, Indiana University. Right? The biggest university in Indiana. And the Kinsey Institute. Some of you, I, I heard that name. 
Now, most of you, how many of you know who Alfred Kinsey was? Yeah. A lot of the old guys. Alfred Kinsey was a biologist whose expertise was in, anyone know? Moths. Moths. But he took it upon himself to become an expert in human sexuality. And so he wrote something called the Kinsey Report. This would have been in the, what, the 50s, 60s? Would have been the 50s or 60s. He did this at Indiana University. And he interviewed uh, all kinds of people to ask them about, you know, their experience and so on. Uh, and the report that he put out there made made it seem as if homosexuality was very, very common. The thing is, the people you know who you, you know who he was interviewing. Anybody know? Prisoners. That's <laughs> that's who he's interviewing, and then publishing his findings as if it applied to the to the country as a whole. He was absolutely uh, central in everything that we're dealing with today. That comes from Bloomington, Indiana. All of it. Everything that we see going on in our country along those lines, LGBTQ stuff, comes from Bloomington. In, In terms of the popularization of it and the mindset that that stuff is just normal, okay? or more normal than anyone wanted to think. And so Bloomington is called the San Francisco of the Midwest. You follow me? So we have a lot of men who are tempted with same-sex intimacy. Okay? And we have them in our church. They're repenting of it. That's what they need to do, right? They need to repent of it. And Christ came for for them. And one of the things that uh, I learned after moving to Bloomington, a new world for me, you know, was Pastor Bailey, who was our our former senior pastor who's now retired, who had ministered in these kinds of contexts for years, decades. He taught us (laughs) that one of the things we need to do to help, sorry, to help them, help help these men, was to what? What do you think? Yeah, love them how? What did you say? Yes, hug them, touch them. To de-eroticize male physical affection. There's nothing going on here. I just love you. I'm going to give you a hug. <laughs> okay. But we're, you see how we're like, no, I, that's gay. No, it's not gay. It's not. So, here's my point. That's a, that's a major part of the drastic drop in male friendships. <laughs> we feel like we have to keep our distance. I really think that's part of it. Now, I think it goes deeper than that. Okay? The decline in male friendships does not come from an overemphasis on masculinity. I don't think that's it. It comes from a misunderstanding of what masculin- masculinity is. 
and a misunderstanding of what it's for. So think about this. What is a man? What is a man? We're here talking about male friendships. What are we even talking about? What is a man? What are men for? What are we for? What did God make men to do? God made men to conquer and to rule. And in order to conquer and to rule, men must learn and do and fight. Okay? That's what God made us to do. Where do we see this in Scripture? Genesis chapter 1. You all know this, right? Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. We'll talk about that tomorrow. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That's what we're for. In 1896, there was an architect named Lewis Sullivan. And he wrote this. He was the guy who really started building and designing uh, skyscrapers. All right. Here's what he says. He says, it is the pervading law of all things organic and inorganic, of all things physical and metaphysical, of all things human and all things superhuman, of all true manifestations of the head, of the heart, of the soul, that the life is recognizable in its expression, that form ever follows function. You ever heard the expression, form follows function? That's where it comes from. Form ever follows function. This is the law, he says. So he's taught, he's wrote, he, he wrote that in a paper about skyscrapers, but as he said, it applies to everything. It applies to hammers. All right? Picture a hammer. If you want to design something that will function to drive nails into wood, right, function. You're trying to design something that will do that job, right? Drive nails into wood. If you have to have something that functions that way, you need its form to be something very particular, right? It's got to have a handle. It's got to be have some leverage to it, has to to have some length, has to be hard, has to be weighted right, has to have a head on it that'll, that'll work to drive nails, right? So that's the form. The form, the shape it takes, is driven by what? By the function of it. Form follows function. Function first, then form. Think of a teacup. Right? If you want to design, if you have the purpose, I want to deliver hot tea to my mouth. Right? That's the, that's the function. What is the form going to be? Well, it's got to be 
got to hold liquid. Handle's kind of nice because it's hot, right? What would happen if you tried to drive nails with a teacup? Yeah. You'd end up with a mess. What would happen if you tried to uh, drink tea with a hammer? (laughs) You know? Form follows function. You understand? Things are designed to do something, and whatever they're supposed to do will determine their shape and their makeup. Form follows function. This is a simple and universal law. The problem is that we are too stupid to actually believe that anymore, especially with the most important things. We will believe that form follows function with hammers and teacups, but we refuse to believe it when it comes to men and women. Totally refuse to believe that this has anything to do with anything, right? We refuse to believe that God gave men broad shoulders and thick skin and testosterone precisely because he designed them to do work that is particular to their sex, right? And we refuse to believe that God gave women breasts and hips and wombs and estrogen precisely because he designed them to do something particular to their sex. What is clear with hammers and teacups is crystal clear with men and women. God made you as a man, as a male, to do certain things. How do we know? Because your body tells you so. Your form follows your function. Look in the mirror. If you're a male, then God made you so that your form would be the result of your God-given function. God created you a man, not just a person, but a man. And the Creator gets to determine the function and the purpose of what He has made. God made you a man. God, God is really into bifurcation, right? Creator, creature. Earth, heaven. Darkness, light, saved, damned. Male, female. But we in our sin want to erase all of those distinctions. We want there to be no difference between us and God, between darkness and light, between man and woman, between man and animal. Our culture exists in its hatred of the Creator, it exists to to destroy distinctions that God built into the universe. And so, of course, our culture exists to discourage us from being men. Our culture teaches us to shirk the responsibilities of manhood, to remain fixated on the trappings of boyhood, right? Video games. ESPN, movies, pornography, laziness, individuality and autonomy, rejecting authority, hating the church, refusing to take responsibility for other souls, late marriage, late or absent fatherhood. This is what our culture says is good and normal. So I want to say something probably controversial. Your manhood Your manhood is more essential to your person 
than your Christianity? I don't know about that, Pastor. When you were born, when you were born, the doctor did not say, it's a person. Right? It's a person. What do they say? It's a boy! (laughs) He did not say, it's a future Christian. Right? I don't know. Maybe they did. I don't think so. They said, it's a boy. Or as they used to say, you know what the old term for boy is, right? It's in the King James. It's a man child. (laughs) Behold, the Lord has given me a man child, you know? Yeah, it's a man child. It's a, it's a man that happens to be at the moment a child. So yes, okay? You are a Christian man. I'm assuming. But you were first a man. It's what you are. That's what you are. It's essential to your nature. You're a man. And your Christianity takes a particular shape because of your particular shape. This is why the Bible is filled with masculine godliness and feminine godliness. Masculine piety and feminine piety. Read the Bible. God's commands are gender-specific. He gives different commands to men and women. Now, of course, there's significant areas of overlap. Okay, of course. You know, the fruit of the Spirit is universal for men and women, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, self-control, all that. Of course, of course, that's universal for all of us. But don't miss the fact that God gives particular commands to men as men and particular commands to women as women. And they're different. So, for example, 1 Timothy 5.8. 1 Timothy 5.8. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's intense. That's really intense. He says that the man who does not provide for his own family has what? Denied the faith. We call that apostasy. Now, Did you hear what he says? He is worse than an unbeliever. Worse. Worse than an unbeliever. Even unbelievers innately, naturally understand that a a man is to provide for his family, especially the widows in his family. That's what Paul is talking about in 1 Timothy. The Apostle Paul assumes a basic fact that God built into the world. Men are to provide for their families. That's what God made you to do. That's what God made men to do. Not as humans, not as persons, but as men. That's what God put Adam in the garden to do. This goes all the way back to the beginning. God put Adam in the garden to do what? To cultivate and keep the garden. We're not talking about Roses and petunias here, right? 
It's not that kind of garden. And when Adam rebelled against God and listened to his wife, God's curse was appropriate to Adam's work. Have you thought about this? Think about the curse. I'm going to read it to you. Genesis 3. Then then to Adam, God said, so God's talking to Adam, and God says to Adam, after the fall, right, after Adam took the fruit from Eve and with her ate it. Then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Sometimes you need to listen to the voice of your wife. Depends on what she's saying. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread. Till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Do you remember what the curse is for, the, for Eve? What? Pain in childbearing. The curse is specific. They're both going to labor. She's going to labor in one way, he's going to labor in another. And they're both going to be difficult. But boy, is it different. Right? This is the work that God made men to do, to provide for their family, to work, to provide food and shelter, provision for the family. You all with me so far? There are specific commands to men as men. Are there specific commands to women as women? This is not a women's retreat, don't worry. But I want you to see this. What's the parallel in Paul's epistles to 1 Timothy 5.8? 1 Timothy 5.8 is what I just read to you. If any man doesn't provide for his own, he's abandoned the faith, denied the faith, worse than an unbeliever. What is the, the woman's parallel to that? Anybody want to stab in the dark? No? It's good. It's good. It's true, but that's not what I'm thinking. Yes. Who said that? You got some stupid kids over here. No, you're exactly right. So it's 1 Timothy 2.15. 1 Timothy 2.15. Listen to what it says. But women will be preserved. Literally, the word is saved. Women will be saved through the bearing of children, right? If they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Just wrap your mind around that for a second. So I believe he's saying that salvation means, in this verse, being restored to what you were made for. So think of this. What What were you men made for? You were made to work and to lead and to provide. And if you deny that, you've abandoned the faith. You're worse than an unbeliever. What is it? What were women made for? Women were made to help, right? I'll make a helper suitable for you, God says to Adam. They were made to help, to bear and nurture children, to submit to the leadership and headship of men. 
And that means their whole demeanor should reflect that, modesty, discretion, a gentle and quiet spirit, submission to the male leaders of the church and to their husbands. These are all the commands that are specific to women. And it means to gladly embrace their God-ordained role as a daughter of Eve, the mother of all the living. Okay. So when he says women will be preserved through the bearing of children, He's not saying that they will earn special merit points by having children, nor is he saying that if they aren't married and can't have children, then they can't go to heaven. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying that God made women to be women. He's, the work of Christ does not undo that. This is what we think today. We think today that the work of Christ strips us, makes us androgynous strips us of maleness or femaleness, puts us all just on a flat table, makes us perfectly equal in every way, and there is no difference between us. There is certainly nothing like feminine piety or masculine piety. How dare you to even think of the idea? That's what we live in. Which means we don't know what men are. We don't know what men are. We don't know what men are for. What were you men, what were we men made for? We were made to work and to lead. And to protect and to provide. What were women made for? To bear. To nurture. Christ restores this. And so if women think that they can be more spiritual, more godly, more Christian by ignoring or trashing or despising their womanhood, they're dead wrong, right? If they think they can't be real Christians unless they become a man and take on all the responsibilities and duties of men like leading churches and teaching in the church, for example, right? They're dead wrong. You've got it completely backwards. Women will be blessed by God as they embrace their particular calling, their particular design as women. Now listen, the same is true for men. Think about how often the Apostle Paul is scandalized by men who refuse to work. Have you noticed this in Paul's writing? How often does the Apostle Paul just scandalized by men who refuse to work. We saw it here in 1 Timothy. He says, look, if you, if you refuse to provide for your family, you are, you've abandoned the faith. If you don't provide for the, men, for the people under your care, you're not a Christian. That's what the Apostle Paul says. He says, the man who does not work, what? Should not eat. He goes after it really hard in Thessalonians, okay? He calls it unruly, dis, uh, disobedient. So God made us. He made us men, not women. We, we must not try to escape that reality. We must not divorce our faith and our salvation and our sanctification from our sex, our maleness. 
And so, if you think you're being godly by throwing off or denying your sex, then you are in fact rejecting God. You are in fact rebelling against God. You're trying to drink tea with a hammer. You're trying to hammer in a nail with a teacup. The mess is unavoidable, right? This is the heart of apostasy. So, here's one application to that. When we're going to talk about friendships among men, what are we not going to talk about? We're not going to talk about... See, here's what I think happens. You read books on friendship for men, and it makes you feel like you're a woman. It's like, you want me to do what? (laughs) Wait a minute. What? You know? What do you want me to do? I don't want to do that. That's what my wife would do. You know? We're going to sit, you know, knee to knee in a little huddle and like stare in each other's eyes and share our deepest what? I don't know. That's just, no, I'm not going to do that. So how we even think about friendship has to be specific to men. So what did God make you to do? Come back to that idea. As a man, he made you to rule, to subdue and work, to be fruitful and multiply, yes. So what does that look like? It's a tall order. Think about it. Bring order to your life, right? If you're going to be a man, you have to bring order to your life. You have to discipline yourself and kill your lusts. You have to have godly ambition, manly creativity. You need to be intentional and purposeful. You have to take responsibility, make judgments, take initiative. Do you have any desire to build anything, to defend anything, to conquer anything, to accomplish anything, to subdue anything, to rule anything, to learn and understand and master anything? This is what God made you to do. This is what God made Adam to do. That's what it means. Now, do you seriously think you can do that alone? Do you honestly think you can handle this work of being a godly man all by yourself? That's a lie. It's a common lie. We all wish it was true because we're proud. That kind of masculinity is, in fact, toxic. You know why? Because it's stupid. If you think being a man equals doing this work alone, you are poisoning yourself. You're guaranteeing that you won't get this work done. As a matter of fact, you'll also be poisoning your wife. We'll see that tomorrow. So I'm going to finish tonight just by reading some scripture to you. You don't have to turn there. I just want you to listen to it. All right? And think about what he's saying, what the writer is saying about 
why we need each other for this work as men. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 to 12. He says, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. Oh, so there's work to be done, right? Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. Do you ever fall? Yeah. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. You're like, no, 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 I got this. I can do this. I'm a loner. So you're going to fall. There's going to be no one to pick you up. You're going to do work, but it's not going to be good. Right? Someone attacks you, and you are constantly attacked. There'll be no one there to help you fight. But you got this, right? No, you don't. <laughs> hey, I don't either. What about this? Galatians 6.2. Galatians 6.2. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. You have burdens? God says you do. You're smarter than God? We're supposed to bear one another's burdens. You cannot do this alone. Here's another, Hebrews 3. Listen to this, Hebrews 3, 12 to 13. Listen very carefully to the language. He says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So what is he talking about? Who's he talking to? He's talking to the people of the church, right? He's not talking to the pastors. He's not talking about what the pastors have to do. He's talking about what you have to do. Take care, brethren. Talking to all of you. Take care, brethren. This is all of your responsibility that there not be in any one of you what? an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. It is your responsibility to make sure that your neighbor, your brother, your friend does not fall away from God. That's what he's saying. It's your responsibility. And it's your brother's responsibility that you don't fall away. So what is the remedy? He says, encourage one another day after day, so keep on doing it. Don't stop. As long as it's called today, <laughs> it's time to encourage someone, your brother, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So how does, how does the deceitfulness of sin work? One of the ways it works is by pulling you off and isolating you. And you start telling yourself stuff 
and you start believing your own lies. And you need someone to say, hey, brother, no, that's crazy. Hey, brother, you're not thinking straight. You're not seeing this right. That is God's method to keep us. It depends on brothers, friends. You isolate yourself, you're dead. Here's one more, last one. A little bit longer, also from Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10. Now listen to this. I'm going to read a little longer passage, Hebrews 10, 19 to 31, then we're done. He says this, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You're all familiar with that passage? What comes next? Here's what comes next. Okay? Do this work of encouraging one another daily. Why? For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So, what's at stake here in your stubborn refusal to have real friends? What's at stake? Your soul. No doubt about it. You think you got this? You think you can do this yourself? You don't need friends. That's for gay men and women. Okay. You will be picked off. Spiritually. You will probably fall away. You don't want men punching you in the face? What I mean by that, we'll talk about this tomorrow. You know what I mean by that. Telling you when you're wrong. You don't want that? Men try to do that. You get proud and offended and and precious 
and leave? And you don't cultivate that kind of, here's a word we all love, you don't cultivate that kind of intimacy? <laughs> Where men know your sins and will will go after you? You don't want that. Of course you don't want that. If you don't have it, you will have an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God and you will be wrapped up, pulled down by the deceitfulness of your sin. That's what will happen. So do you need friends? I don't mean buddies to shoot pool with. You can have your buddies to shoot pool with. That's not what I'm talking about. Unless your buddies who shoot pool with you will take you to task, who know you, who you can trust. All right? That's what we're going to talk about this weekend. So, let's pray and ask God to help us, all right? Let's pray. Father, would you please have mercy on us? Um, you know us. You know what we need. You've designed us for certain things, and we are, are always prone to uh, turn away from our responsibilities. We are proud. We don't want to be known for what we really are. We don't want to have to ask for help. We don't want to rely on anyone else. We're afraid of what people think of us. We're afraid of what other men think of us. And so we isolate ourselves, Lord, and we need, we need to stop it. So, Lord, would you please help us, help us this weekend to, to be honest with ourselves, to see what we need, and to have your help doing it, and one another's help. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.